It's June 14, 2011, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. Think back, if you can, to November the 28th last year, just after Thanksgiving, before Christmas. That feels like a long time ago, right? Well, that is how long the $65 million Spider-Man musical Turn Off the Dark had been previewing for 183 performances before it finally opened today (laughs) in history in 2011. The longest preview period in Broadway history and the most expensive flop. Yeah, and you would have thought that it could have and should have been a smash hit because obviously Spider-Man had been a big pop cultural icon for a good five decades. This was coming just after three big Hollywood blockbusters had come out and all done very well. The songs were written by U2's Bono and the Edge, possibly in the downward period of their career, but still pretty big. And the director was Julie Taymor, who had masterminded the record-breaking stage adaptation of Disney's The Lion King. So how did it go wrong? Let me count the ways. Yeah, Yeah, where to begin? I mean, the omens are pretty dark from the off. I mean, one of the other big creative pluses going in was Tony Adams, who was an Irish film and theatrical producer who had basically conceived the whole idea of doing a big, flashy spectacle Spider-Man on Broadway. And then, okay, okay, so he'd gone over to the Edge's apartment to sign the contract and Glenn Berger, who wrote the book of the show, recalled... The Edge went to go get a pen and when he came back, he found Tony Adams slumped over. And Tony Adams, who was still in his 50s, was dead the next day from a stroke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's not the best uh, harbinger of success, is it, when the person who conceives the show literally dies as they're signing the contract. Right. And Berger, who told that story, wasn't brought in as the writer of the book initially. After this meeting, Bono and the Edge decided, I suppose, maybe partly in tribute to Adams, let's go ahead and make this musical anyway went and asked a mate if he'd like to write the book of this musical. Not any old mate, but award-winning film director Neil Jordan of The Crying Game. Mm. He was the person they approached to do the book. But, and this is a trope you come across a lot in this story, he had never written for the stage before Mm. and specifically had no interest in Broadway musicals. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was really going wrong from the beginning in part because the director, Taymor, had only agreed to be involved if they could fuse the production with a Greek myth. Her idea was that she would only be part of this production if, as she said, she could find a narrative something to spark her imagination. And that particular something was the Greek myth of Arachne, who was a woman who beat the goddess Athena in a weaving contest and was transformed into a spider by the jealous (laughs) goddess. And so, I mean, I've always said the one thing Spider-Man needs is an origin story. You never hear enough about the mythos. (laughs) I mean, there was one thing that I liked about it, which was that it was meant to be originally narrated by a so-called geek chorus <laughs> that I quite enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just really tonally not what theatre goers would expect from Spider-Man the musical. I think that was the issue. I mean, the original Taylor version had Mary Jane's alcoholic father smacking her with a beer bottle. Right. You're just like, oh no, I was going to bring my kids in the summer holidays. Like, this isn't what I expect to see. But I think this is the thing, you know, the death of Tony Adams at the beginning, that wasn't just a sinister omen. That also left this big creation gap in the whole endeavour and that gave Taymor probably more leeway than the average Broadway director would get because you had Jordan writing the book who hadn't written a book before, you had you know the death of Adams and it meant that she could exercise her vision to the fullest. It wasn't until really far into the process that she left and someone else was hastily brought in to reshape the musical. (laughs) Yeah okay so how did it get into that stage? 
Um, well, uh, Bono and the Edge had never written a musical before either or had any interest in writing a musical. Uh, a producer supposedly had to burn them an educational four-CD <laughs> compilation of 60 songs from the last 60 years of musical theatre. <laughs> um, and apparently Bono just kept going on about um, You'll Never Walk Alone. Because like, he, oh. he knew that one from Football Terraces and was like, we, we want to write one like that. Right. Which I suppose <laughs> Which is they did a not. fair ambition, but they certainly <laughs> failed at that. Yeah. Main issue, though, was that for the kind of um, quality of stage effects that are obviously required to have uh, Spider-Man become airborne, you need a lot of money mm. up front. And um, just to give you some idea, there were 27 flying sequences in the final version of Spider-Man that opened on this day. You know, when you think about something like Phantom of the Opera and the Chandelier, you know, that goes down once and comes up once. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And everyone goes, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Miss Saigon, the helicopter comes in once. You don't have it 27 different ways flying in and out of the audience over everyone's heads. I mean, the ambition was completely insane. The end of part one was going to be an enormous spider's web that fell on the audience. They spent a million dollars creating this stage effect and then decided it didn't work. <laughs> Apparently in the very first performance that they put in front of a live audience, Audience in this run of 183 previews, it came to a halt when Spidey got stuck above the audience. Everything was apparently going well, and then he uh, swung out over the audience and just stopped completely in midair, dangling seven feet above the first two rows. Well, someone had pressed the emergency sp- stop, apparently. Oh, really? I... So it was it was designed for his safety. Okay. But, uh, then once you'd pressed it, you have to turn all the house lights on and get him down with the ladder. And, and that was well, the this is the one. thing they hadn't they hadn't <laughs> thought through how to get him down, so they had to stop because they couldn't reach him from any angle. <laughs> well, I mean, he had it luckier than most. I mean, when you look at what happened to some of the other cast members, you know, the show became infamous for its injury. The actress playing the role of Arachne was hit on the head in the wings by a spring hook falling from the rigging. Later, she suffered a concussion. And at a preview on December the 20th, a former called Chris Tierney plunged 30 foot into the orchestra pit due to an improperly connected harness. He ended up with a skull fracture, broken ribs, a bruised lung, cracked vertebrae and internal bleeding. The New York State Department of Labor cited the show for workplace safety violations as if it was some kind of shady dockside warehouse (laughs) yeah as the run of previews went on you had one of the stunt doubles springing backwards and breaking both of his wrists you had another of the stunt flyers because obviously like 10 actors playing spider-man so that he could dart all around the auditorium uh, being injured in the same scene as a 20 foot high ramp which was meant to lower uh, from a 45 to a 20 degree angle but but it didn't lower in time and the cables whipped him up stage and slammed him into the ramp oof And worst of all, who ended up suing um, the production, you had the dancer Daniel Curry. He got his foot trapped between the hydraulic lift and the stage. And his foot was trapped in a hydraulic lift for like 40 minutes. Yeah, Saturday Night Live ran a sketch about a law firm specialising in Spider-Man related workplace injuries. (laughs) Even Sesame Street parodied it. Because the other thing that was happening was that the production was also becoming the big target for the press. You know, it was easy to milk the drama and the amusement of this cursed production. So it ended up creating a bit of a vicious circle. You know, it was very hard for the show to get back on its feet when it was being the subject of you know ridicule in the mainstream media and the thing is that pre-production budget to allow those stage effects to take place meant there was no surplus left for any running costs you know once the show had opened so they were hemorrhaging cash like it would only ever turn a profit if it was sold out every night for four years because they'd had to rent the theater the biggest theater in new york for almost two years before performances started just to get all the rigging up they would kept alan cumming on a retainer to play the green goblin 
and in the end never employed him as he was one of the few people to actually make money out of the show. They were paying focus groups to come and see the show. They were giving them $60 goodie bags wow. so they could try and work out what was wrong with the show. They knew it wasn't quite working, but they felt instinctively, like you were saying, Arian, at the top, that they had every single element there. And as you alluded to, Rebecca, in the end... Uh, they replaced Julie Taymor. They rewrote the script before it had opened and they were still trying to put a gloss on it for the public. The producer, Michael Cole, told the New York Times, on a scale of 1 to 10, we have a show that's a 10 now and it needs to be a 12, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the things that was definitely not working was the songs themselves. You two were in the process of trying to put together Songs of Innocence and during this time they'd been asked to write a song for Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom and they wrote a, a really successful song, it was called Ordinary Love and at the 2014 Golden Globes it won the award for Best Original Song but all of this is stuff that is distracting them from what should have been surely their primary focus which is this massive budget big deal musical production Bono didn't even see a performance until January the 4th, five weeks into previews and apparently immediately was like Why is the sound so bad in here? Yeah, so the preview version got some incredibly savage critical reception. Hadley Freeman in The Guardian famously called it baffling in its ineptitude. And, and this must have been a bitter pill to swallow because at this time they spent $65 million on it. She wrote that the much-vaunted flying sequences are no more spectacular than any cut-price circus. But in the middle of the previews, you know, they replaced Taymor with Phil McKinley, who was a former circus director. He pared back the artistic, you know, some would say, pretentious elements, reshaped into a simpler, brighter, family-friendly spectacle rather than striving something artistic. And the revamped version, the one that officially opened on this day, drew much kinder reviews. You know, it has obviously this cultural image, uh, rightly so, of being a huge flop, which it was monetarily because it closed at a massive loss. But it actually sold like crazy. The first week of January 2012, it took in almost three million in ticket sales, which set a record for the time. Yeah, they just built a rod for their own backs in that they had to be the most popular show on Broadway for years Mm. to turn a profit. But yeah, you're you're right. It stayed open for three years. And even when they announced the closure of it, they were like, I think we're going to have a second life for this in Germany or on Vegas. You'll note that neither of those things happened. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they did go through cast members like they were trying to decimate Broadway. Although, remarkably, Reeve Carney, who starred as Peter Parker on this day, he survived in the role role for three years of six shows (laughs) per week. Uh Although I do think that it's not a coincidence that the only actors who made it through the entire run are the old characters who get to stay on the ground. J. Jonah Jameson, Aunt May and Uncle Ben were the only ones whose actors made it through the whole run end to end. Tomorrow. Kind of does need a good script. Like, he does two things. He plays idiot and he plays genius. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospector. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.